There are multiple ways to keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast. Through our Instagram handle, the Wolf Connection Pod, and for comments and questions, send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Stephen and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some more. Stephen and I are here with Cheryl Alexander. She's a conservation photographer. She is the author of Takea Lone Wolf, which came out in 2020. Uh, and I believe, uh, Cheryl, you were also, did you produce uh, the film or you were part of the film, Takea, uh, correct as well? Both, yes. I was part of it. Uh, it was based on my work and also my a lot of my cinematography. And also uh, I was the executive producer, so. So we are going to be going through a lot of the book, a lot of your career. Uh, she, Cheryl's also, uh, she's on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, just so you all know, and to give you a, a reference point, she gave it to us. It's roughly the size of England. So just take that into account when we're talking about all this cool stuff. Cheryl, so Cheryl, your background in photography was, you know, the brownie as a little kid. Um, and then what would, because you did a lot of work before you retired that is similar to what Wolf Connection does. So you worked with some at-risk youth. Just get, give everybody a sense of your background in that area and how it led you to this path that you're on currently. Yes, uh, I guess it, it started for me working with um, at-risk youth when I was in my early 20s. And I worked, uh, well, I actually uh, worked for a program that was a government-sponsored program. It was um, for young offenders, so uh, kids who were sentenced by the court um, for whatever they had done. But uh, it involved, it was a a high-risk wilderness program modeled on the outward bound um, model. And basically what it meant was that they were sentenced by the court to attend this high-risk wilderness program. And so I ran the first program for girls in uh, BC here, um, which was very interesting. And I did it for off and on. We ran winter programs on weekends and we ran uh, month-long summer programs. Um, taking kids into the wilderness. And eventually it, it actually led me to do graduate work uh, in, um, in high-risk wilderness uh, experiences and changes in self-esteem and uh, changes in locus of control. So uh, I did a, a, a graduate thesis on that subject, actually. Yeah. Wow. So when you're in this, what what was the program like? Because with us, it's it's an eight-week program. Where did you come up with the curriculum yourself? Was it something that you had a team? How did this all work in those first few years until you got a base under yourself? Yeah. So do you know? Do you know about the Outward Bound program, the model? No. Please. No. Yeah. Please explain. So Outward Bound originated in Britain initially, and it was conceived of. It was actually it's it came out of an awareness during the war that uh, when they would have a ship would go down or something, the, the people who survived uh, were not the ones that they expected. So they would have expected the young, physically fit um, ones to survive, but instead they were finding that it was the older, um, more mature, more life experienced people who managed to survive. And so what they realized was that there was something about um, about having hard life experiences that equipped you to deal with difficult situations. And so they started to develop a, um, 
a model where, where which was really a personal growth uh, development tool. And it was taking people into what would be perceived as risky wilderness experiences uh, to challenge them and to push them uh, beyond limits that they thought they might be able to um, cope with. And as a result of being successful in these kind of situations, people's self-esteem developed, uh, increased, uh, people's feeling that they could control their life uh, increased, and it was a very powerful experience. So Outward Bound had programs uh, all over the world, um, and they were not really targeted necessarily at high-risk populations initially. It was just any people who wanted to increase their personal self-awareness would take these programs. So this um, government program was actually developed uh, based on that model. And so it wasn't me developing it, it but it was um, initially run, run for um, just uh, boys. And it would be from about the ages of 13 to 18. And then um, when I got involved, they decided to run a program also for girls. And <clears throat> so I worked with the first sets of girls and we would have a group of five kids, five to six kids, uh, and we would be responsible for them. And we'd take them through a number of different experiences. And that would include rock climbing, kayaking, canoeing, um, hiking, mountain climbing, uh, you know, the whole range of things. They And culminating in a, so, a solo, which is a three-day experience where the, the participant is uh, spends three days by themselves in the wilderness and with very minimal uh, equipment. And so their challenge is to to survive and it's hard it's not easy most people will never have spent three days alone in the wilderness by themselves so very po powerful experiences for kids and actually for anyone what were some of the things that you saw that came out that people that both the adults and, and the adults uh the kids and the adults what did they say when they came out of that last experience or that or that program what were some of the things that they were saying to you specifically Oh, gee, well, I can I can give you uh, an interesting example that occurred. So one, one of the first girls that I had in my program, my very first program was, her name was Sam, and she was a 14-year-old street kid who was sort of known as the, the leader of the downtown street gang. Really tough as nails. She'd lived on the street for a few years. Uh, she did not want to be in this program. Most kids coming into the program did not want to be there. Um, and so what ended up happening was <laughs> she, um, uh, because they were also, she was actually in, um, uh, she, she was not, uh, she was under arrest, like she was in a, a detention home. So she would come with me for the weekend. And the first few weekends, she would try and escape. She would, you know, we'd be going on our morning runs and I'd see, find her running the other way. And so I'd have to run and we'd actually end up fighting in the ditch and, you know, me trying to uh, contain her. Um, so that was a start. And then gradually, she, as she went through, it was a form, this, the winter program was a four month program. And it was run on every weekend. So every weekend we would go out and do something so that they could do school and um, or and or work during the week. And so in the end, she ended up um, after four months of this of the, the program, she became uh, much 
um, more committed to um, feeling confident that she could uh, tackle things in her lives without tangling with the law. Uh, and she actually came back, asked to come back and be my assistant the following um, program that I ran. Wow. That's, that's incredible. That's awesome. We actually, what, you know, it's, what's a great parallel to this is we actually, in our program, so, so we've done a bunch of programs. Steven and I were a part of them for, for a little while. And actually three of the students that went through our eight-week program came back as graduates. So they helped the next set of kids. And now they actually, they work at the organization. So we've got three of them coming back, which is, I think that, isn't that the greatest testament to the, the turnaround that can happen? Is that it's just, that there is that possibility and that way for people to walk through a door and, and make a new start for themselves? Yeah, yeah, it's very powerful and, and really rewarding to be part of that journey for someone. And um, her, in her case, she, it wasn't a miracle. She didn't miraculously change all of her ways. And she ended up getting in trouble again a few times. But she was on a different path. And in the end, she became a parent and a teacher. So her, her life shifted in an amazing direction. And as did a number of other kids. And we had a number of kids come back to, to help with the next program, you know, would volunteer. And yeah, really neat. Do you, you think you can isolate what it was about this program that, that works? And I know it's a group of things, but what's, what's unique about people interacting with the wilderness or the outdoors that, that works? Um, you know, one of the things that I think is unique is that it, it places people in uh, uncomfortable situations where the um, where the impact upon themselves is solely controlled by themselves. So if they um, uh, you know don't pack their um, pack properly, then they end up uh, struggling. Uh, if they don't um, cooperate as a group, and actually it was also based on group um, pressure group dynamics that you know and group encouragement. So when someone got down on themselves, it would be the group moved together as a group. So they would help each other accomplish things that they didn't feel like they could do. So it's sort of, I can't climb that mountain. That's ridiculous. You know, I, I'm not fit enough. Yes, you can. We can do it this way. We can go up here. We can take our time. Uh, and then when they got to the top, uh, it was uh, the sense of accomplishment. And I think the sense that they did really hard things um, that meant they could tackle other hard things. It's almost like... Ha having power is maybe about having self-responsibility and being accountable for yourself and being trusted and supported with that, with that level of responsibility made that, that, that cultivates real empowerment. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the, the, um, <clears throat> it was always an accountability to not only yourself, but to the collective, uh, which both of those things was, was were significant. 
Equally important was um, the recognition that uh, that the wilderness and environment played an important role in in um, our lives. And so I, I ended up going on to do graduate work and, and teaching environmental studies at university. And so a large portion of my career was actually working with environmental issues, uh, initially education, and then working at a policy program level to involve people in um, complex decision-making processes around uh, environmental issues. So that was my, the work that sort of um, led me along the, the path to, um, to recognizing the significance of our relationship with the environment and with uh, the creatures that also share that environment with us. So I just thought that's an important um, journey because this working with the young offenders in the high-risk wilderness program started me off, but then it, it carried on into much more significance to everyone in general and how we live on the earth. So what were the what were the policies that you were working on in terms of I, I guess were you educating individuals uh, about the coexistence uh, with the wild and understanding what the wild can help help us in terms of our daily lives. What was that like then after after you were done with the program and you moved into some of your educational work and, and past that? Yeah, actually, what the the sort of turn that it took for me was, um, and again, this was sort of a recognition of the collective um, power of people, but uh, was recognizing that we faced, um, as, as a world, we faced environmental issues. So this was even, this was in the early 80s that I was doing this. I was teaching a course, Environmental Issues at University. At that time, no one, there was no such thing as environmental studies programs at university. This was the very early days of recognition that there's something going on here. And so what I started to um, and got, got very involved in is the intersection between people and dynamics between in groups and um, sort of the investment that we all have from different perspectives in the environment and the recognition that when we decide things about environment or how we're going to handle our resources or our forests or our um, water, um, that it needs to involve a range of stakeholders uh, to make really good decisions. And so that became my specialty was um, advising senior management in government who were developing, for example, the watershed restoration program for British Columbia, or the um, uh, using science in decision making. It was just that I became a um, specialist in, in helping people design uh, multi-party decision making processes where you involved the right people in those decisions. Yeah. Mm. What was that like trying to bring those different sets of stakeholders together? Because we've had a lot of discussions on this podcast with different individuals about how as long as we work together and have everyone have their voice, a lot can actually get accomplished and we have a lot more in common than we, than we think. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. But I would also say that it's an extremely uh, difficult process is very frustrating. Um, and sometimes there are diametrically opposed 
uh, viewpoints. And one of the intersections there, obviously, is in the world of, of wolves, because uh, there are um, interests such as ranchers, um, hunters, who want or believe it's better to kill wolves, and other people who want to develop processes to coexist with them. So there's no easy solution, uh, but because we all have to live together and share the planet, we have to figure out how to move forward um, protecting the some of the wild values and wilderness values that we have. Uh, and sometimes you have to be radical and be an activist and get out there and, and say, no, we, we can't keep killing everything that gets in our way. There's too many of us. You know, we, we have to have to figure things out a bit differently. And so then that's where you get the pressure from different groups to change laws and regulations that somehow um, may affect how people decide um, they can act in relation to wildlife. What's the general feeling? in and around Vancouver Island, because you, again, reading through your book, it, you were, it almost seems like you're, you're everywhere <laughs> up in this area. What, what's the general consensus that you feel people are in terms of understanding their environment, the impact that people have, and are, are they more on the coexistence train? Are they, you know, 50-50 split? What's your gauge for that since you've been up there? I would say people here in general um, support trying to learn to coexist with wildlife and minimizing our impact, figuring out how we deal with the interface between uh, human habitation and development and wilderness. Um, we did a, there was a recent um, survey done which showed that about 80 to 90 percent of people are against uh, killing uh, predators like wolves and bears, etc., just for recreation uh, or for um, dealing with habitat issues that we we ourselves have have created. So that being said, so I think most people, a majority of people, would support coexistence, but there is a very strong, powerful, um, archaic leftover. Um, group of people who still feel as if they're living in in the um, previous century where you need to kill uh, all predators who get in your way who they are competing so hunters for example um, often see wolves as vermin that must be um, gotten rid of and we have regulations in our province here that allows that to happen so um, it, there's quite a bit of evolution still needs to occur uh, for us to address some of those discrepancies. And unfortunately, the hunter lobby group is fairly strong, even though they are not the majority of the population. It seems that it's, that's a parallel pretty much west of the, of the Mississippi, both in, in the United States and, and even in Canada, that the, the vocal minority seems to have a lot of sway or pulls a lot of sway in a lot of these legislative issues and political decisions on what to do with the, especially the apex predator, as you described, you know, mountain lions and bears and, and wolves seem to be the top three candidates for where people look to exterminate or continue to keep the numbers low for whatever the reasoning is. So w when you're doing all this work and, and, you know, how long were you in that 
you know, it seems, you know, because you, if you did this, the, the, like you said, the at-risk youth work uh, somewhere in your 20s, how long were you in this uh, arena of, you know, working on policy and things like that? And what was the decision you made to, you know, step away from that to a degree and do something a little bit different? Yeah, I did that for most of my working life. So I would say, you know, 40 years, um, 35, 40 years worked in those areas. Um, And I honestly, I just got to a certain point where I thought I had, it was frustrating. I was feeling that some of what I was doing wasn't um, resulting in some of the changes that I wanted to see. And I also had um, just a thought that, that telling stories and using photography was more powerful way for me to um, influence um, some of what I cared greatly about, which was the maintaining of wilderness environments in the world. And uh, what I what I saw happening was um, just that we were losing touch as as people with um, our wilderness roots, and we, you know we're, we started. We're living in cities. We're living in in high rises, and people don't even understand what we're losing. And to me, it seemed critical from an ecological perspective, and also from a mental um, health perspective, uh, that we humans need to keep our connection with the wild world alive and we need to do what we can to maintain that wild world and it's it's vanishing at quite a fast rate so that was my impetus for okay you know what now I I can stop doing this consulting work and I'm going to focus on something that can maybe be powerful and you were mentioning the um the vocal minority in uh in in the context of the uh hunting lobbies um does Canada have something similar to the Pittman Pittman Robinson uh, Robertson uh, Federal Aid Act in in the U.S.? Uh, can you tell me what that is? Is that where? Yeah, uh, it, it's basically. Um, yeah, go ahead. If you might. Well, you I'm just gu- I'm just guessing. Is that is that <laughs> where if um, you know a, a wolf uh, kills a kills a sheep? they get reimbursed? No, oh. but oh, well, that's a good question too. Do you guys have that? Do you guys have something um, like that? There is is something like that, but not as developed, I don't think, as it is in the States. Uh, we also aren't as hugely a ranching um, community as, as you guys are down there. No, the Pittman-Robertson um, Federal Aid Act is, is um, it, it basically a Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act, which um, is is essentially the justification that's put forth for why hunters have such a large impact on what happens with wildlife because essentially they're paying for it. So it's it 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 meaning you know every hunting tag that gets purchased. Um, there's there's I th- I, I believe uh, there's a lot of uh, archery equipment involved, firearms, ammunition. Um, all of these have a tax on them and that those taxes go directly towards wildlife restoration act, uh, restoration, wildlife restoration, which is why, um, they do have such a large say, because of course the irony is that in the mid 1900s, you know, hunters were responsible for these extirpations, but then really hunters were also responsible for, um, 
you know, population increases for, for, for dozens of species. So it's, that's, that's sort of the justification for why hunters have such a big voice um, in terms of wildlife management. Is there anything similar to that in Canada or, or what's the justification there for why the, 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 the hunting lobby has such a, a big impact on uh, what's going on there? I would say it's very similar. Um, yes, the, uh, what you're describing is the North American um, model of wildlife management. Essentially, yeah, uh, <laughs> in short. So yeah. that that has uh, had it play, had, probably had its place at a certain point in um, history. Uh, I believe it's really antiquated now and needs drastic mm-hmm. revision, our concept of how we manage wildlife. Um the, that certainly is the argument, one of the arguments that's used here. Okay. Um, it's an ar- argument that's also used internationally for, for um, trophy hunting, uh, right. uh, for justifying the killing of, pri- of mostly large predators. And the, Africa, the hunting yeah. lobby here, they basically would say, oh, well, we, you know, we need to control the wolves because the deer populations are plummeting. Um, and therefore they're taking, you know, the wolves are taking the deer we ourselves want to kill. Um, so that begs a couple of questions. Maybe it's time for hunters also to stop killing deer for a while. Um, and maybe it's also time to look at how we're managing the habitat because that's what's creating the loss of wildlife. The problems, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's what Lori, Lori was saying a couple of episodes ago about the habitat loss for the caribou. And that was the, that was the issue that they were having as they were saying, the wolves were taking the caribou, whereas the logging industry, and so it's it's this domino effect of all these things that we as humans sometimes get, we lose sight of what we're actually doing and our impact, and we immediately go to a, a predator or an animal that is taking care of you know this other population. It's it's the easy way out. It's like oh yeah. gee okay, if the deer are reducing, then we better kill the wolves because because <laughs> we can't stop logging our watersheds. Right. Yeah. And yeah. We can't start making make. We can't stop making those tax dollars. Yeah. It's such a it's such a conundrum that we're in. I do think we need to start to separate um, our how we manage our our um, wild diversity, the um, diversity on our planet from the from users uh, and from being from funds being um, coming. From primarily from people who want to um, use that resource rather than from the collective of everyone who needs to benefit from that resource. Right. It's a little bit of a, it can be a conflict of interest there. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's so much to unpack. It, it seems like with every guest that we speak to, um, and you're no exception, is that there, there's such a, it's like a simple answer, but it's complicated in the same way. It's like if we just, <laughs> the other know. complicated part about that too is, right, we, where we all, I mean, at least here, you know, the public land is owned by all of us. And therefore, we all have a stake in what happens to the species here. So it, it, the conflict is, you know, where one group is disproportionately taxed and it's going towards those things that can, that creates kind of a, an issue, like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, so with that, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. No, this, and this is what we mean. This is why, you know, I, I, I love, I love this medium because we can get off on a tangent like that. And it's a good tangent. There is no bad tangent in any of these episodes. So um, I appreciate you, Cheryl, for, for halting me and, and going off on this. So I appreciate that. And that's great. Um, 
but when we, so now when we transition to your next phase of life, when we're talking about your getting out of the policy game, you're looking to tell stories and you're, you're doing your, you're getting back into photography and things like that. I'll, I'll go back to the question I asked probably about 20 minutes ago is where, what just, I guess, set the scene for everybody about, and for those of you that have not read or viewed this book, I highly recommend it. I went through it in a day and that was not a rush read or a rush look. I was completely enamored with everything in this book. So Takea Lone Wolf, if you guys look it up, it's everywhere. Uh, I highly recommend it if you are a, a wolf enthusiast or non for that interest. The photography in and of itself is great. So just set the scene for everyone where, when when was your first viewing of Takea and how did it all unfold and, and what were the feelings that were going through you as this, this wolf came into your view? Okay, so, uh, and again, I'm not mean to not answer the stuff about Takea, but I'll just take you back a little tiny bit further because uh, Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I then... Um, about 10, 12 years ago now, I got uh, a request from someone in South Africa um, uh, in an area called the Wild Coast of South Africa, which is this stunningly beautiful uh, hotspot of biodiversity in the world, actually designated, um, to come in and participate as a photographer in uh, the local people who were trying to um, save their area of Wild Coast from the development of titanium mining. So I, that, this was kind of the, my trigger to getting into using photography um, for um, proposing or for, for uh, act, being active in terms of wilderness preservation and conservation. So I went over and did that. It resulted in a lot of very interesting things. I subsequently came back here and got involved in um, a project to try and get uh, the Salish Sea, which is the area kind of between Seattle, Vancouver Island, and Vancouver, goes up the coast toward the mid-coast, to uh, propose it as a um, World Heritage Site. And in the end, we didn't uh, succeed in getting Canada to put it forward as one of the sites, but it created a whole lot of interest and enthusiasm, and I used photography to sort of work on that as well. So then what happened was I had a space, and it was sort of like Takea came into my life at a time when I could pay attention and I wasn't having to work. I was, my kids had grown uh, and were all doing their own life things. And so I actually had the time to respond to this very, um, very powerful call. And so there, there's a small group of islands off of our large island. It's a, just a little archipelago, very tiny islands, a total of like not even two square kilometers but a number of different islands. And I've been going to these islands off and on over 40 years. So I knew them really well. There's no habitation there at all. No people live there. Um, but it was part First Nations land, part park. And um, lo and behold, in about 2012, uh, there was a report that there was a wolf um, out there. And Everyone responded to this like, no way, <laughs> that's just impossible. But it turned out that there was. And so I went out for a couple of years, actually, before I even um, physically encountered the wolf. And the first, I would say, two encounters were the most powerful and were what 
led me to go follow the path that I ended up following then for the next six years. And the first encounter was I was just drifting through the islands with my husband, one of my daughters and a friend, and we were having sort of happy hour at sunset in the boat and, you know, chatting away. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this wolf swim across from one island to the other, come out of the water and disappeared really quickly behind some bushes. But he started to howl. And oh, my God, it the the impact of this howl was felt through every part of my body and it was and and I I it made me and also another woman in the boat in tears like it just it it triggered such a very emotive um experience so as a result of that I thought hang on a sec, what is this wolf doing out here? Like he's by himself. And the little I knew about wolves was that, you know, they were kind of family animals. Um, So it just seemed odd. And so I ended up encountering him a few months later uh, directly. And we had eye contact. And it was that connection um, with looking into his eyes and him looking into mine that something happened and I cannot describe really what it was except that it triggered in me some kind of very elemental response um, of recognition uh, and of um, uh, a a powerful almost sort of kinship uh, that I felt and that it was those couple of experiences that then led me to start to try and figure it out and get out there more and more. And the more I went out, the more I encountered him, the more I started um, learning about his life, the more remarkable uh, I found it, and then started to photograph and document and then film. And it just, it, it was, you know, it turned out to be six years of quite incredible experience. And it would not have happened if I, if it was earlier in my life, because I wouldn't have had time. I was working full time. I had kids, three kids and, you know, juggling life. So it just came at a time when I could could be open to it. So yeah, we how long up. was he? Uh, oh, go ahead, John. No, go ahead, Stephen. How, how long was he out there for? Or what, what's the best guess on that? How long was he there? Well, we know exactly how long he was out there for. He arrived there in May of 2012 and he was there for eight years. So he left, um, ended up in the city in 2020. Okay, this is a few parter. So where did they know what, did they know if what pack he came from or where he originated? No, no, Uh, no, I wanted to find that out. I was very curious. I do know how he got there uh, in terms of I know some of his journey through the city because he was some people saw him. Um, He was um, uh, in people's yards. Uh, He was on near highways in near the city. He was traveling through this suburban area um, for at least probably a month. Uh, he was in the suburban area and eventually ended up getting to the end of um, the land and for whatever reason saw this these islands across the the strait or across the channel and decided to swim swim over there. <laughs> so I did try and do DNA um, and figure out if there's any way we could figure out where he came from, but uh, there aren't enough reference samples of wolves to even uh, compare him to some other packs. 
that whole time you were watching him, what was like, what was the biggest thing he was eating out there? Or what was he eating just in general? What was he eating? <laughs> well, you see why this was so curious for everyone is that when he arrived there, the authorities, the uh, wolf scientists at UVic, they all said, oh, well, there's no way this wolf will survive out there because there's no deer on this island. There were no small mammals. There were no... Um, and no small land mammals. There were there was no year-round source of fresh water. So they said, well, there's no way he can live out there. Well, it turned out he was actually pretty clever and he ended up primarily eating seal. Yeah, this is this is what makes me really curious about this whole story. This is the last part of this particular question, John. Um, I just wonder if all wolves have that amount of adaptability because my understanding is that you know, a significant difference between wolves and coyotes, for example, is that assisted coyotes in sort of avoiding the historical, you know, extirpations of, of large canines was that level of adaptability where they can just eat whatever, they can be by themselves, they can be with a pack. But that sort of insinuates that maybe wolves can't access that level of adaptation to, to, to their circumstances. So I wonder if wolves are more adaptable than it seems to us or if Takaya was just different in that he was able to make that switch from, from you know, classic prey to, to this small... Uh, ocean prey i mean it's weird it sounds like it wasn't it sounds like it wasn't a temporary change but that he had legitimately made some kind of evolutionary switch could you see him learning per se or was it very natural to him to adapt to what could be considered a strange habitat and, and diet for for wolves especially a lone wolf but what are your thoughts on that was he different or is this something we just haven't seen before okay i in answer i'm gonna say both but uh, both of those are accurate i think because i i think one yes he was uh different in some ways in that he chose to do that um that he decided to adapt and i think he did also learn um when he was out there i don't think when he went there he figured out how all the different things he ended up eating um he eventually I observed him, he had learned to eat uh, prickleback fish, which are these fish that are intertidal. They're under rocks in the intertidal. So weird. And the things that eat prickleback fish primarily are um, uh, great blue herons, uh, river otters, and he would have seen them fishing up I these see. things. And he obviously learned they were there and figured out how to get them himself. Same with goose eggs. The, there were tons of goose nests uh, kind of geese that nest out there and he figured out how to eat the eggs properly uh and in fact not only that i kind of think he may have figured out that he actually farmed the eggs because he would not take you know you'd think he would come up to the nest of seven eggs and go mm, yum 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 eat up all the eggs crunch them up no he didn't do that at all he took out one egg two eggs for once uh, like one uh, and a week later he would take out two more eggs. And a week later, he'd take out three more eggs. And what happens with Canada geese is they will often relay if their eggs are go missing or are disturbed. So, you know, question, had he figured out that that if he did that, the, he would end up with more eggs? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was crazy. And um, but but to answer the other part of your question, I think all wolves are very adaptable. And I think that they they have proved that in many ways. I mean, there are many wolves in Europe, for example, that live smack in the middle of, um, of uh, uh, human habitation. 
and people don't even realize they're there. Uh, same with um, here. I mean, we had, um, you know, this is sort of skipping ahead to part of the end of the story, but there was a female wolf that eventually came to and almost went across to the islands where Takea lived. And she didn't choose to do that for some reason, but I did. I do know that for four months she lived in a suburban area of Victoria um, under the radar. No one knew she was there, and um, it, it was in a place where there was tons of people. You know, bikers and and little um, houses and farms, and it was crazy. So, um, so and also. The sea wolves, so Takea was an example of what we call a coastal or a sea wolf. And research has um, shown that they are genetically distinct uh, from the interior gray wolves. And the, the, one of the things that is interesting about this is that they have learned to eat um, a more um, marine diet. So Takea was the extreme of a sea mm. wolf because his diet was almost 100% marine. Mm. But some of these other sea wolves who live up the, in the Great Bear Rainforest or even on Vancouver Island, they'll they'll eat um, uh, as part of their diet seventy percent, you know, s s marine stuff that they scavenge and salmon. So they'll eat salmon from the from the um, streams, and uh, then they also hunt deer and and other mammals because they have access to both. Whereas Takea didn't have access to both; he only had that. And he just figured it out. I mean, it's what, yeah, it's totally wild because it's, and some of the photos you have too, where, I mean, what were the interactions like? Because you have orca that come up there as well. So is he, I mean, he's having to swim, you know, and he, and you said he used to swim to all these islands sometimes in a, you know, within an hour, under an hour, right? So he's, he's moving. So is he, I mean, is, did you liken him? Did you see any similarities like a mirroring aspect for Takea to you that you knew these islands so well and you could get around as quickly as possible. Did you did that ever cross your mind at any point? <laughs> that he what, that he 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 could do the same thing. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that I mean, we both were at home in in that world, and uh, he was super at home in the world. I mean, I, I the more I watched him, the more some of my um, uh, things that I believed to be true turned out not to be. So for example, you know, I hypothesized initially before I'd even seen him swimming. Well, first, no one thought he swam. It was like everyone thought he stayed on the big island. And I was like, oh, he's the Discovery Island wolf. Well, no, actually, he's not. <laughs> he's on the other islands as much as he's on the big island. But um, I thought, well, he probably swims um, at the lowest tide tidal current um because these islands are very tidal there's very strong currents go through them i thought he probably swims at slack tide and he probably swims at the narrowest part well turned out i was completely inaccurate about that because one of the first mm. times i saw him swim he swam across the widest part of the channel and he swam when it was the tide was running really strong <laughs> and i saw that he knew how to ferry he, he actually ferried across using the current. He swam upstream at an angle to get across right to where he wanted to get to. It was great. <laughs> That's incredible. Did he, uh, in, your, in your eyes, from what, you, from what you can perceive, did he make any really obvious attempts to find other wolves? Well, uh, he certainly was making an attempt to call for other wolves. He, he howled 
very frequently. Um, he he howled all I would say all year round, but he his howling was particularly strong during Feb, January, February, when is the mating season for wolves. Um, as far as I know, and as far as anyone knows, he did not leave the island in those eight years. Well, that's not entirely true, actually. I don't know if you read in the book, but he when he arrived in the islands in May 2012, he lived there for a couple of months. And actually, the authorities tried to trap him. And they used a, a professional trapper who actually obviously wasn't that good because they didn't weren't able to trap him. Uh, so they failed twice. He avoided the traps. And um, but then in August of that year, he actually left the islands and he swam five nautical miles across these big currented waters to another island that only had a lighthouse on it. And it had virtually no forest, nothing. And we know this because the lighthouse keeper saw him and watched him from the from her lighthouse. <clears throat> and he he was swimming to the island through these massive kelp beds, bull kelp beds that surround the islands. I, imagine trying to swim over and through a kelp bed as a wolf, as a dog. So he managed, he got there, he didn't spend very long there and he got back in the water and he started swimming out the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which is the area of water that goes out to the Pacific Ocean in between Canada and the U.S. And uh, he, as the, as the a lighthouse keeper watched him, she saw that he, he encountered a big fish boat that was kind of bearing down on him freaked him out, we think. He turned around, swam back to the lighthouse island, and then two days later was heard howling back on the group of islands that he ended up staying then for the next eight years. So as far as we know, he didn't leave to seek a female after that. Yeah. In your experiences with your friends, your family, because it seemed as though Takea was, I don't want to say used to people, but he had a way of communicating with everyone that that got close to him or because there were there's a lot of great pictures that you took where there's kayakers or paddle boarders that get too close and you could see him he's just looking over a ridge and just sort of watching and making sure they don't come close enough how how did he deal with over that that eight year period anyone that came relatively close to him he did, was he used to humans in a way that he could see them and then be able to hide what was his what was, you know, what was his, I don't know, how did he feel about humans, I guess, that you could tell? Yeah, this is, uh, this is a really fascinating question, because um, I would say, you know, because of where he chose to live, <laughs> these islands, he had to figure out how to coexist with people, because although no one lived there, um, people would visit the islands. And it's not heavily visited, um, but it would be like primarily kayakers or stand-up paddle boarders would come out. Uh, people would camp in the park. Uh, so there was just a one area that people are allowed to camp in the park. Uh, small uh, fishing boats would come and, you know, have lunch on the shore and stuff. So there was there were people moving into and out of his environment. And also, you know, he could hear all the people across the channel living in Victoria. There were dogs barking and cars and and people building houses. And, you know, th there was humans around mm -hmm. all the time. So, but he, he was smart enough to know to avoid 
most encounters with people. So of all the time he lived there, there was never an experience where he went into the park, for example, or tried to um, get anything from campers, um, no, no negative encounters. Uh, there, if he, if he accidentally ran into someone on the trails, which was very rare, um, he would turn and run the other way. Like he'd, he'd, he'd just vanish. So he kept a very low profile and he also could do that because he was extremely camouflaged. So, you know, those pictures that I have of the, of the kayaker going right past him, I watched the kayaker paddle past. He had no idea Takeo was laying on the beach. So like literally feet from him. And um, so generally I would say Takeo's behavior was he ignored people, he avoided people. And if he had a kill or something, which he would often drag up onto a bluff, if he had a kill nearby and someone came to the beach nearby or, or uh, under him with their kayak, he let them know to back off. So he would do his warning howls and he sounded very uh, ferocious when he did that and a very um, aggressive, like back off. I'm not, you're, I'm not happy with you right now go away. And that was his, his way of interaction. And ultimately, you know, if he didn't want to see or be around people, he just had to go in anywhere in inland and you'd never know he was there. I mean, tons of dense forest, many places he could be. And, and often I would go a week or two weeks without seeing him at all. And you'd never even know which island he was on. Yeah. I'm looking at pictures of him right now and he, he does just look you know, I hate to uh, assume what an animal is thinking to too severe a degree, but did you ever think, like, what the heck is this wolf doing here? Why, why is he here? Why is he not desperately trying to get off this island and back to a pack somewhere? I mean, did you, did you ever think what the heck's going on? And did you ever, did you ever come to any kind of educated guess to, to <laughs> why he just decided, oh, I'll just be by myself here indefinitely do, doing this? You know... That's a very good question, and I don't have a really solid answer. But um, so here's here's a bit of a, a guess. He, he wolves like us mm -hmm. essentially look for three things in life. We look for um, territory or a home that we can feel safe. We look for food, places where we can you know feed ourselves, and we look for a mate or a family companionship and wolves are the same those are the three things that that they want out of life generally my theory is that Takea, for whatever reason why he decided to stay there initially he found those first two things so he found a solid territory of which he was definitely alpha king you know it was his land and then he also found a, a really sustainable source of food so he was never hungry. He had food. He could feed himself. He figured out how to survive on the limited water that was there at, at drought times of year. And in fact, he even learned to dig for water. So uh, he was pretty resilient and survivor, but he didn't have access to other wolves. And I think he may have not understood that he was going to be there for eight years maybe he lived moment to moment and you know every time he howled he thought mm, maybe 
uh, this will be the time that uh, someone comes along. <laughs> so, <laughs> and maybe he didn't want to go back the way he came either. Yeah, yeah. And maybe he was he he gave me the impression that he was content. Yeah. You know, he I described him as very zen. He yeah. he gave that feeling of uh, I am here. I am content. I am in place. I am in control. I know this world. It's mine. And I'll still keep hoping maybe that someday another wolf will come along. Yeah, he gives off exactly that energy in these photos. I don't know why. Yeah, he. It, it's funny because he did in person, like any, everyone who saw him was heavily impacted by him. Even just in a moment uh, of, of interaction, there was something that changed people about seeing him. And now with the film and with the book, people, I still get those responses from people. It changes something in them as soon as they look into his eyes. And it's quite remarkable. No, I, Stephen, you hit the nail on the head. And obviously, uh, Cheryl, your photos, you know, speak to that with him. And, and you do a beautiful job too in the book in, in some of the, the sections inside the page where you have people's accounts of seeing him. And it's just maybe three or four sentences, but it really speaks to the volume of his impact. Like you say, just on a passerby or someone who's in a boat who sees this wolf on these rocks, on these islands and with, you know, with a, with a kill or something. And I think that's the extraordinary part. I think, see, when you were talking about what he was eating, I mean, there's a section where he's, he kills, I think, a 300-pound seal <laughs> and that's and he's you know he takes a bit of it he eats and then he's pull, he's trying to drag I mean think about dragging this cart you know and it's full of fat and all this stuff up the beach I just don't and get it how did he kill a seal I don't understand it's I, <laughs> Cheryl <laughs> they can like ten wolves can barely kill a buffalo on land how did this how did he kill a seal well first uh. of all. At least seals aren't, he didn't have to do the the heavy running that the wolves on land have to do to take down the prey. So <laughs> yeah. you know, seals kind of lay around. Um, and I think he just got really good at uh, <laughs> at the art of of sneaking up uh, when a seal okay. called out. Is that how he did uh, it? So he wasn't taking them from the water, I don't okay. think. Okay, okay, um, all right. I think he was, you know, ambushing them. <laughs> while they were sleeping. <laughs> while they okay. were asleep or in the night. But still, to to take on a 300-pound, a, a, a seal that was bigger than he was and actually kill it was quite remarkable. And I, I'm really sad to say I never saw him do that. Like, I tried. I tried so many times to, I went out at night with night vision goggles to try and see if I could see him doing something at night. Cause I figured he did a lot of his killing of seals at night. Um, I think I also saw him uh, during the day kill seals, but, um, and would see him right after he got them, you know, running with them in his, in his mouth, but I never managed to see him actually doing it. Yeah. I mean, he was feisty too. I mean, you were talking about too, he, he, he was going after otters, which, I mean, they, they can be pretty, you know, uh, pretty defensive upon themselves because there were a couple of photos where he had markings on his nose where clearly he'd been scratched or bitten or whatever it is. But it just, it's amazing to me how this wolf really just embodied, it seemed like, the islands himself and just the people that were there or visited too. It just, it... It was it was almost like you said this this moment of sacred timing when you had 
this time to view his life. And then he was able to share it with the rest of the people that were there. Yeah. And that, you know, what has been so absolutely um, very wonderful for me about this whole journey is being able to share um, his life and my experiences with him with a broader um, range of people around the world. And I'm not exaggerating when I say I continue on a daily basis almost to get um, letters from people who talk about the impact that hearing his story or my story has had on them and on their life and how it has inspired them. And, and um it's it's just amazing. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you read in the book, but there was this one incident where when I was trying to figure out initially, I started to become a detective, right? Like how, who, how did he get there? And did anyone see him? And then I found personal reports. And then I found the guy who'd, who'd actually um, had a brief encounter with him and he took photographs. And so I, I ended up phoning this guy that, that I ended up finding out who he was. And his name was Doug. And, and he was, it was such a wild story. You know, Doug said to me, he said, you know, I was in a really hard time in my life. I had split up with my relationship. I had lost all faith in the world. I didn't feel I was, you know, I was no good. I didn't know where I was going. I was living in a trailer in the back of my sister's farm property. And he said, I was sitting there and I smoked a joint, I think he said. And I, he said, I looked out, um, and I saw this creature coming across toward me. And he said, I first I thought it was like a dog. And then it got closer. I thought, my God, that's a wolf. And he said, I looked at we, he said, we we locked eyes, the wolf and I. And he said it was only a minute. And he said, then he turned and he just loped across the field and effortlessly jumped over a six-foot-high fence and disappeared. And Doug said, I, he said, that moment changed my life. It changed the course of my life. And he said, as I, he said, I thought if that wolf who is alone and is going through this world alone can make it, then so can I. And he said, I just shifted around my whole perspective. And I, he said, as a tribute to that, <laughs> this is where it got really crazy. He says, as a tribute to that, I, I got a tattoo. And he said, do you want to see it? And so I said, yeah. He held up his arms like this, and he had in giant lone wolf written on his arm on his forearms <laughs> he said this is to remind me of what I learned when I looked into this wolf's eyes mm. tell yeah. us about the uh, origins of the name Takea um yeah. well for me you know I wanted to um stop calling him wolf because I would come home and I go oh I saw the wolf again today <laughs> and uh so I started to think about names and I thought about you know what what is wolf in a different language and uh the um the oh, well, I, I searched no, I did a google search wolf <laughs> in, in other languages and came up the Coast Salish word for wolf was Takea um turns out I think a lot of people pronounce it Takaya but for whatever reason I read it and said for me it became Takea and um so it I learned 
I, I mean, to me, it just fit. It was a good fit. He seemed like a Takea. And also I, I practiced Aikido when I, in my earlier younger years, and which is a, a Japanese martial art. And I also at that time learned that it was the Japanese word also meant honorable one. And so it just seemed like a really good name for him so I just chose it you know I didn't when I started out honestly guys I didn't think I was going to write a book I didn't think I was going to make a movie um, I just was doing you know for myself I was taking photos and learning about this wolf and as it slowly evolved I would never have guessed that you know then uh, what I named the wolf would become important to people anywhere else it was just a name for me yeah I mean it comes through uh in every page of the book and you know, I actually tried to view the film. I think it can only be viewed in Canada. I have to try and find it somewhere. I can send you guys a link to my Vimeo. It's it's the rights. <clears throat> there So far, the rights have not been uh, bought to show it in the States. But we're working actually to try and get those rights so it can be released in the States. Uh, but I'll, I can send you a link so you can see it. Mm, yeah, that'd, that'd be, be fantastic. Awesome. No, I'd appreciate that. So I, I know as we head down this path and this beautiful story. And what what struck me, I think, too, as we get, you know, so Takei is living this this life that you're able to watch and all these people are able to watch. And, you know, when he he went back to that lighthouse island, right? And there was there was an I want to say an interaction. I don't want to say there was an altercation really with a family that was there that led him to, I think, didn't he swim to the main, so, like the main? So, no, yeah, go ahead with no, that. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a bit confusing. Um, so, the, the lighthouse that he swam to was five nautical miles away. There is also a lighthouse on the islands that he lived on. Uh, it's an abandoned lighthouse. Uh, so, it still is the lights maintained, but the buildings are not maintained. <clears throat> so, it's a place that the people who visit the park um, often will hike to, to check it out. And um, so that's what this, it was the only time in the eight years that there was any sort of negative encounter. And it was an example of humans' inability <laughs> to coexist um, effectively with a wild carnivore because <clears throat> it wasn't his fault. It was the human's fault. And so what happened was he, there, there was a rule that you couldn't bring dogs onto the island. You used to be able to before Takea showed up there, but um, once he was there, in order to minimize uh, potential for conflict, the parks put up, you can't bring dogs on the island. <clears throat> but these people did. And as um, my information was they actually had two dogs and they went for a hike. They had a couple kids that were maybe, I don't know, 12 or 13. Uh, and there were two guys, <coughs> two men. And they hiked to the lighthouse. And when they were on their way back from the lighthouse, they looked around and saw that they'd picked up a third dog. Well, it was Takea <laughs> tromping along behind, you know, the, the dogs. And obviously interested in the dogs. Like, they're his kind, right? And this is a wolf that has spent now four years at this point on an island or in his territory without any other contact of any wolf or dog or anything like he's and, and the wolves are very tactile so he's had no touch no nothing um and so of course he's interested in the dogs and apparently he was later on these people said he was not being aggressive at all but it freaked them out 
because they didn't know what a wolf would do. So they ran, well, they walked quickly back to the lighthouse and they climbed up this, this ladder on the side of a wall to the top of a flat roofed um, building on the lighthouse. And he apparently stayed down at the in the field below and was watching them. He was probably thinking, what the heck are they doing up there? <laughs> and, and sadly, they then called for um, for being saved by the Coast Guard. So they had a radio with them and they radioed for help from the Coast Guard. And the, there was a big Coast Guard ship nearby. And so it came in and it sent a couple of um, people uh, with armed um, fisheries officers with um, guns uh, to go rescue these people from the top of the lighthouse. <laughs> and, and so that in itself wouldn't have been problematic, except for what happened was the park's reaction was, oh, we've got to shut down the park. No one's allowed to go there because what if this wolf's going to attack people? And we have to determine if he's, if he's negatively habituated. And if so, we're going to have to kill him. So that was what that chain of events set um, in for Takea. And that was his, that was the time that he was most at risk in the islands. And then I, as we get toward, when we get towards the, the end of his, his life, what, what struck me is how it was handled. And if you can go through it, because you have a better account than I do, obviously, just by, from reading the book, is how did he get to, did he make it over to the mainland in some way and why he did that? And that's where he was cornered. Like, because yeah. I remember, because they, because they, they ended up obviously, I believe, darting him right at some, or cornering him and then trying to relocate him. Just go through that part because that, that led to the end of his days. Yeah, over, towards the end I, of can, I can give you a brief account of that because it's not in the book. So I had written the book. The film came out in 2019 um in the fall and then over that period of time before 2020 I wrote the book and strangely and this is how so much of this of these things were quite uh synchronistic but I literally wrote the last sentence dotted the last per period in the book um and was sending it off to the publisher uh the day that I was informed that there was a wolf in downtown Victoria so the day he, I finished the book, he, so the book does not contain, uh, except for a little epilogue, anything about what happened afterwards. But as far as we know, um, well, we have no, no knowledge whatsoever of why he really ended up in Victoria. <clears throat> Some people thought he may have gone looking for this female wolf who had been there a number of months before nearby um, and was actually swimming in waters near where the islands were, but didn't quite make it to the islands. Um, other people thought he maybe said he was hungry. I I completely disagree with that. He had survived very happily for eight years. He wasn't um, going to look for food. Um, he may have been going to look for the female, but you know, my question about that was why when he was 11, why didn't he do it when he was younger and had more testosterone? <laughs> um, so it just seemed a bit odd that he, all of a sudden he would go look for food or for a female. 
Uh, and then the other possibilities were that something may have happened out there. Like there was a hunter that went out there and which was illegally shooting ducks and stuff. Maybe he got too close and Takea freaked out. Um, another poss strong possibility, I think, and this, so it was in the end of January. It was super stormy. There was, you know, tons of wind and waves and really high uh, currents and he crossed regularly, as I said, between all these islands. And some of the channels are very powerful. And if he made a mistake trying to cross one of those, he may have gotten washed away toward the city because they're like four or five knot currents and you, you know, he, he wouldn't be able to swim back against them. So that is a possibility. We just will never know. For, for whatever reason, he ended up seriously in right in the downtown core of Victoria. Victoria is a city of about, you know, 400,000 people. Um, this is a big city. And he was, uh, I know lots about what happened for him in those couple of days, but basically he looked like he was just on a mission. Like he, he didn't interact with people. He didn't interact with dogs. He didn't chase things. He just was looking like he was trying to get out, like find a way out. And um, he ended up in parking garages and in on people's patios and in people's backyards and walking right, right down the middle of streets. Um, and so I was informed that there was a wolf there and I thought, oh shit, is it possible it's Takea? Uh, and then when I saw someone had taken a picture, I thought, yeah, I think that's him, crap. And so they, the, you know, of course, then it was warning, keep your kids off the street, keep your pets inside, all this ridiculous stuff that we mm -hmm. do. And so the police were after him and the, and the conservation officers. And initially they were told not to shoot him. And then they were given the, like I was getting this information. They were then told if they, that they should shoot him. And in the end, you know, he just, came and he curled up in between a shed and a fence in a space of about a foot and a half. And he just lay down and curled up and people had seen him go in there. So the police arrived and I actually arrived. I was there. Um, and the conservation officers came a few hours later and they, sh they shot him with a tranquilizer gun. And the, the really good thing about this <laughs> only positive thing was that he Normally, the, the policy in BC is that if a large carnivore goes into a, an urban area, a city, they do not relocate. The policy is not to relocate, it's to kill the animal. So they made an exception for Takea because he was famous and everyone knew about him. And so um, that was good. Uh, but what wasn't good was what they decided to do. So <clears throat> they... I, I believe they should have taken him back to his islands and given him another chance. They said, oh, well, we don't know why he left. So, you know, we're going to take him and put him somewhere else. Um, so they took him and put him out sort of 50 kilometers uh, to the northwest of Victoria in the middle of a clear cut way up in the hills uh, in the middle of winter in these huge storms and not a seal to be seen. And um, lots of hunters, lots of wolf trappers, uh, lots of people, um, rivers that were flooding. I mean, it just, it was, it was uh, a really bad decision, I think.
So just to finish that off, he did survive out there for two months. I ended up finding where he had been released and I ended up um, uh, gathering lots of information about his behavior. Um, he was, as you'd expect, a survivor. He, he had had 10 broken ribs that were healing when he was eventually the necropsy on his body was done. And I think that he may have uh, been washed down a river because he wouldn't have actually known much about rivers. And we had huge floods right after he was released, big logs going down these rivers. Uh, but he was surviving. And, um, and I also believe he was trying to get back to his island territory because he went 50 kilometers in one direction toward Victoria and his islands. And then he he encountered probably this a couple of wolf packs that live there, did not cross through their territory, turned around, went back, and went 50 kilometers the other way, that he would take him even a shorter route to the islands. And uh, unfortunately encountered uh, a cougar hunter who um, shot him. It's really an incredible life that you you have documented for, for this wolf and to make it available for everyone to be able to see is, it's important. I think it's an important story that, you, that you've told, that you continue to tell. I mean, what, and you have, there's so much that you do, you know, since he's, since he's passed, uh, you have, I, I believe we just missed, right? You have a collective howl for Takea every year. There's artwork I see that people make. Uh, conservation work in his name. What are some of the things that you you do for in memory of him and and to help other other wolves uh, as it as you go forward? Yeah, you know what his death triggered in me was I became a wolf activist, <laughs> a political activist um, because of the regulations in BC that currently allowed that to be legal. Uh, and in fact, even encouraged by the government to shoot wolves. Um, so the hunter was not um, charged. It, he had, there was no accountability. And I just thought, no, this is wrong. This is that anyone can just decide to shoot a wolf for no reason is unacceptable. Um, so yeah, I started, um, there's been <laughs> initiatives to um, press the government to review the regulations, uh, which allow hunting and trapping indiscriminately of wolves. Um, their uh, municipalities have come on board. There's been huge public art pieces created here, a big marble art piece that's about to be erected hopefully in the next couple of months. Um, a huge mural that was created out in the islands. Um, one of the things that happened, and this started to happen before he was even killed as a result of the film, was people felt compelled to do art, create art in tribute to Takea. And uh, the first thing I got was from England and it was a piece of art from a woman who said, I just felt I had to paint him and I want you to have it. And so she had shipped it over and that just started this deluge of, of art that people started to create. And um, I started to think, wow, this is, you know, I, I, I need to keep this art as a legacy. Like he, he's, he's, it means something. And honestly, we got art. I, I have art now from probably over 20 countries. Um, Egypt, uh, Slovenia, um, the the Netherlands, um, Scotland, England, France, Australia. I mean, it just goes on and on, and um, hundreds of pieces of art 
so we're so I had the first Takea Arts Festival, and so all the money raised goes toward wolf organizations that are doing good education and conservation work. Um, I'm there's been films, there's book, you know, I did two kids' books, there's there's just a lot of initiatives um, that are very inspiring about uh Takea. And and um excitingly, there's a in the future it seems to be that there's a there's um a production company is just poised to create um uh, a feature film. Mm. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Cheryl, tell everybody where they can, you know, view all your your photos, the stories, uh, where they can purchase the book, anything that's coming up that if people want to, to donate, to submit artwork, things like that, what's what's coming up and where can people find your stuff? Yeah, uh, well, takeaslegacy.com uh, is the website. We've, oh, there's been also music. People have composed music, um, uh, orchestral pieces, uh, pieces from France, piano pieces from France. Uh, there's so, so there's some really cool music. You can access uh, most of this. I mean, I've got to say, I'm not, it's, I, I'm having a hard time keeping up with it all. So it's not always totally current, but it's on the website. Um, we have the third annual Takea Arts Festival coming up in September 10th, this spring or this fall. And uh, so encourage any artists who want to contribute or be involved to um, find out the information that's on my Instagram. Takea Lone Wolf is the Instagram and also Facebook um, page for him. Uh, yeah, there's just a lot uh, happening. There's articles. There's, you know, you can find tons of stuff on the web now uh, that have been written and and that he has inspired. My last question, Cheryl, is when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Oh, I probably mystery, beauty, uh, connection to a, our more primal uh, self. Uh, yeah, well, wolf, you know, I did not know much about wolves before I started this whole journey. <laughs> And now I feel like I've done my PhD in wolf wolf work, and um, yeah, I just uh, think it's it's something very elemental that is a very big part of who we are as human beings. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you, to get to speak with you, to learn more about Takea, about your work. Uh, any of you, we're going to have all of these links in the description for the podcast, so you guys can contact Cheryl multiple different ways. Again, the book is Takea Lone Wolf. It's by Cheryl Alexander. The forward is by Carl Safina. I believe I'm saying the last name right. Uh, pick it up. Uh, and like she said, any of you artists out there who want to draw some, draw something, paint something, send it to Cheryl and, and get this third annual festival off, on the, off in a good direction. Cheryl Alexander, great to have you and uh, just awesome to meet you. Thank you so yeah. much for everything Thank you're doing. You. Thank you for your interest and for what you're doing. I think it's great. Yeah, keep it up. <laughs> we appreciate that. How's to all of you out there? And Stephen, I'll be with you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information. 